Welcome to Lyme Dialogues, the podcast about Lyme disease. My name is Angela Knight. I'm a journalist and I'll be speaking to Lyme patients about how the disease has affected their lives. My guest today is Sharon Whiteman, the CEO and President of the Lyme Disease Association of Australia. Despite being a recovering Lyme patient herself, Sharon has been a tireless campaigner of justice for patients of Lyme disease in a country which doesn't recognise the disease. Sharon joins me now from her home near Brisbane in Australia. Welcome to Lyme Dialogue, Sharon. Uh, Thank you so very much, Angela. Thank you for what you're doing as well. It's really important to get this word out across the globe. Uh, Well, first of all, can you tell me how you became interested in Lyme disease? Uh, Angela, I um, got bit by a tick in 2002. Um, I actually live on the Sunshine Coast north of Brisbane. And on that uh, property that we lived in at the time, we had maybe up to 10 to 20 ticks off our pets a day in tick season. And I had no idea of the danger. I didn't know the risk and I didn't know that you could get a disease. Long story short, I got this tick bite on my arm and it was different than any other one I've ever had. And it had a bullseye rash. Um, I felt really sick and like this impending doom. I thought, oh my goodness. And um, I got up and unfortunately I only found a entomology site. So the entomology site said that this was a rash from a tick and it was rarely fatal. So I just kept on taking my immune support and (laughs) being a good natural health person. And um, yeah, within three years, I didn't connect that tick to my complete decline into disability. I couldn't walk unaided. I didn't know my family's names. You know, I had the list of 20 plus symptoms like anybody else. And for me, it was just a chance meeting with a U.S. doctor that said you need to be tested for Lyme. He gave me a a lab in the U.S. I sent my blood there and it came back positive in December 2006. And sadly, that was kind of the second start in the battle, as it is in Australia, because Lyme isn't recognized here. So, yeah, I I credit, you know, my recovery, I guess, to just meeting Lyme patients and helping me. Um, People often criticize me for saying this, but um, it's salt and sea saved my life. I met someone and said, and I couldn't find any doctor to help me. And I'm now I've been with this charity for 10 years and I now know that that's a common experience. Could you just repeat that? It's called the Salt and Sea Protocol. It was established in the US, again, from patients who couldn't find treatment. And it's, you just take high dose uh, sodium chloride and vitamin C, crosses the blood brain barrier. And within 18 months, I was functional. Again, I, I, remain disabled, but I wasn't couch bound and housebound any longer. And I could remember my, who my family was, <laughs> which was a bonus. Yeah. Well, it's extraordinary that the Department of Health in Australia doesn't recognize Lyme disease in Australia. It's, it's really hard to comprehend. It is. You know, I'm Canadian born, uh, but I've been in Australia for four years. And I guess the best way to describe it is they think because we're an island continent, Um, We're kind of immune and that this is just something that's an overseas problem. Um, And obviously that's illogical. And, you know, we challenged the government in that there was greater than 20 year gap between the first cases discovered here in Australia, which was, you know, within a five to six year period of when it was first discovered in the U.S. 
So, you know, the problem is the same. It comes in on imported livestock, whether it's cattle or horses. And obviously now there's significant research in regards to migrating birds and ticks. So there's no continent that's immune from tick and other vector-borne diseases on the planet. Yes. So how many cases are there of people with chronic Lyme or the so-called Lyme-like disease after being bitten by a tick? Uh, well, there's no epidemiological review in Australia, so they, there's nobody counting except for us. So we've done a study and uh, like a survey rather, and um, we found that there's greater than 1500 at that time. That was about eight years ago. And I think the best way that we look at it now without the ability to widely surveil and study this is to establish that we the globe has a mean incidence of 5.8%. And that would mean we've got about uh, 20,000 new cases a year and probably up to half a million cases over uh, the past 25 years since it was first discovered in New South Wales in patients. And, well, they, they found it in the 50s, actually, in veterinary medicine, in animals and rats. And the other research seems to be buried. So in the early 90s, they changed research to be digital so that all the research prior to the 90s was in paper. And it's hard to find and establish those. But definitely we've got a, a long history of finding various kinds of Borrelia in Australia. And, you know, I challenge, it doesn't matter what species of Borrelia, there'll be a variety of them on many continents and maybe obviously an increased incidence of certain species. Are there any cases that the authorities accept are Lyme disease? And how many cases do you think there are in Australia? Well, the government has called Lyme disease different things because they are sticking with the original definition of Lyme as being Borrelia burgdorferi. And they say that's not here, so therefore Lyme disease is not here. They also have called it Lyme-like illness to sidestep the burgdorferi. They've called it DSCAT, D-S-C-A-T-T, debilitating symptom complexes attributed to ticks. You know, I allege that that's a patient blaming name. So there are these sick people think they're sick after a tick, but we don't think so. So no, they don't accept any cases in Australia. And we estimate based on the 5.8% mean global prevalence that we have about 500,000 patients here sick with Lyme and, and associated diseases. Well, it must be very difficult communicating and helping the members of LDAA when your own government says there isn't Lyme in Australia. It's heartbreaking, to be honest. Um, and especially now, it's the worst it's been. So um, through our work and the work of, of many patient groups across Australia, you know, there was several initiatives and consultations with government starting in 2012 advisory committee um, and we are the patient representatives on that and they folded that a few years later in 2014 with the chief medical officer saying you can't have a committee if nobody's going to discuss and basically the Lyme denying component of that committee just sort of basically crossed arms closed ranks and said prove it and so then uh, there are several steps after that another hearing at the house of reps level and then a senate inquiry which finished in 2016, reported in 2017, and they have progressed some of the um, recommendations from the Senate. And I, I think I can say now quite unequivocally that 
nothing they've done has helped patients, which was the prime mandate out of that Senate inquiry. So they've prioritized research, which a million dollars went to a psychiatrist uh, to establish whether cognitive behavior therapy assisted Lyme patients, which you know, most Lyme patients know that's been disproven now in chronic fatigue and even shown to be harmful. They've given two million to a vet and they're going to look at new cases, which so far our testing in Australia is kind of failing us. So I don't know, maybe if they fix their research um, processes, this researcher actually has found a novel Borrelia in echidna ticks, ticks that bite echidnas. Um, but according to research and cautious postulate, they have to prove that those ticks bite humans before they'll see that as a potential public health threat. So, you know, obviously he's got potential, but the fact that it's on new patients, that doesn't help all the tens of thousands of Australians who are sick now. Can you just make something clear to me? You said ticks on kidneys, did you? Echidna, it's like a little spiny anteater. So it's like a porcupine. If you're taking North America, I don't know what they have in the UK. No, nope. <laughs> I don't think we've no got porcupines there. No, <laughs> quite cute, actually. Little pointed nose, little spiny, spiky little, um, I don't know if they're, I don't know my knowledge. It's a small native animal in Australia. And they've done some uh, studies with the CSIRO, which is this premier science organization in the government here. Uh, but that's non-disclosed. It's not disclosed what they're doing. And it, what, it didn't go to tender. It was sort of a private grant. We're unclear as to what that's about. And then the final thing they've done is they've hired a consultant group to develop a clinical pathway and also to develop another vector education for Australia, both of which we disagree with. And no patient stakeholder or medical stakeholder or international experts that were hired as consultants by the government, which is Dr. Richard Horowitz and Dr. Armin Schwartzbeck. None, none of our feedback has been taken on board. So we unequivocally reject the clinical pathway, but sadly it's now what's required by doctors to follow, which means a GP cannot diagnose or treat a tick bite or anybody with symptoms of tick bite. They have to refer to an infectious disease specialist, which in the public health system, that could be three to six months or longer. And to our knowledge, we don't know any infectious disease doctor in Australia who will accept and treat Lyme disease in patients here. So it's a very mm -hmm. dire time for sick Australians. I believe there's also misinformation on the internet about Lyme disease. It says that people can recover from Lyme within two to six weeks without antibiotics. Yes. Well, you know, I guess that's part of our job. I mean, it should be the job of scientists and the health policymakers that govern us and that are there to protect and serve their constituents. But right now it's only patients that are really making things aware, like what you're doing here, Angela, it's really important to get the word out because, and, you know, most recently uh, a group of patients in Europe um, gathered together and Canada and they reached out to us. It was just a casual start but we all realize we're on the same page and that patients need to have a voice and patients need to develop a concerted message you know by patients for patients so um, I really appreciate what you're doing it's I think that's the next step for the global progress great well I took a look at the medical literature and found that in the 1900s two species of Borrelia were introduced to Australia via cattle and poultry also, in your part of Australia, Brisbane, spirochetes were found in bandicoots and kangaroos. 
but all the reports say that there was no evidence that Borrelia was transmitted to humans. And an overview of the studies reveals that many animals were found to have Borrelia or relapsing fever, but that where the ELISA test showed a positive result, it was decided that these were false positives. Yes, that's accurate. That's very true. And that's the same thing that's happening today. And there's a extensive discrepancies. It's not really my personal area of expertise, but ultimately, depending on where you send your blood, you can have a different standard as to how those tests are evaluated. So sometimes they require one band, two band, three bands, and it's random. And it seems to be very subjective. There's no consistency across testing or analysis results of that testing in Australia. Well, you do appear to have an Alice in Wonderland situation. Australian labs aren't equipped to test for the bacteria, mostly, and many sufferers are forced to send their blood to overseas labs. But the medical authorities say that these overseas labs are not accredited and their results are false positives. That's correct. That's correct. And it's also a non-scientific stance, one of many non-scientific stances uh, taken by the government in that Well, there's something called uh, a mutual recognition agreement, MRA, and it's used in various levels of industry. But for laboratory tests, they recognize international tests that have, you know, been determined and evaluated to have equal standards of quality assurance as the Australian expectations. And both Armin Labs and Igenics meet those criteria. So they're ISO, it's an international uh, process, but it's ISO 10589. And they're accredited to that. So their results should be accepted. So it's non-scientific for that to be refused, but it is consistent. It's refused all across the country, except obviously in the small remaining handful of doctors who are brave and follow their moral compass in seeing that these people are sick and they're sick after tick bites and they reach out to look at global science. It's May now and Lyme Disease Awareness Month. So are you promoting tick awareness? Uh, This year, we're actually going to be publishing two letters. One's not ready yet, so it'll be sometime in May. But we're in the process of a rebrand and and a refresh at the Lyme Disease Association. And um, we're looking forward to a whole new year this year, probably starting in June, July. So we'll be having campaigns from there. It's interesting. Tick season here in Australia starts in August. While it can be all year round, you know, we're still getting new tick bite cases into our inbox. I completely endorse having May as the international Lyme month. It's just, you know, why push against a wave that's already large and growing? <laughs> it's, it's perfect. Yes. Dr. Richard Horowitz, the well-known Lyme disease doctor and author, is the patron of LDAA. You interviewed him for the association's website, which reveals the dire situation in Australia. Dr. Horowitz says he thinks Australian doctors are scared because many countries around the world have sanctioned doctors who treat Lyme disease. Is this the case? Oh, absolutely. It's, and it's not a secret. It's publicly known. Almost all the doctors have been either warned or watched. I bumped into one of our Lyme treating doctors and she'd had this rush of tick bite patients and I've seen it on the local uh, Facebook community group that people say, hey, I had to fight what doctor did I go to? And that doctor was named. And all of a sudden, she just got this rush because like, there's 80,000 people in that group. And because she started ordering the tests for those diseases from an Australian lab, she was then being flagged by Medicare, which is our government payment for doctors, and watched just for ordering the tests. 
I mean, it's a, it's a dire situation. We only have four doctors left in Australia out of 30 some that will receive patients from referrals. I used to be able to get kids in or new tick bite patients in an urgent appointment. I can't even do that now. So since 2018, we've been advising patients to seek overseas medical care. And Dr. Horovitz says there's a spreading global epidemic and a lot of the world governments are following the CDC's guidelines. But the CDC's website says that Lyme is a clinical diagnosis and the two-tier system which is used was never meant to make a clinical diagnosis, which explains why the test is about as accurate as tossing a coin. (laughs) You know, that's completely accurate. Well, I guess it doesn't take a huge lot of intelligence to see that a lot of these decisions and the actions in health policy around the world aren't based on science. Because one hand, the science will say one thing, and then there'll be a random policy decision. So um, I don't understand that. I can only speculate, but I definitely know it harms patients. It's, you know, I, I'm just an ordinary person that saw injustice and thought we have to change this. And until this year, I really thought that if we showed them what was happening, they would change. And now I'm 100% confident they have no intention of changing this. So it's it's good thing that people like some of the patients in the US are getting legal precedence across the table, because I see that that's the only way forward somewhere in our future here in Australia. He says that if there was better genetic testing in Australia, that Borrelia would be easier to identify. Well, the most important way to look at that is that there's been such a significant time of research gap. So they haven't put money towards this. So the last time was in the 80s and 90s. And then the next time is basically now, you know, they seem to close ranks on a certain position in science, which is non-scientific itself, and then only support that concept or that philosophy. And all we can say is that it harms patients. And, you know, generations of people will be affected in Australia now and have lost hope. So Lyme Disease Association of Australia, you know, we're not stopping, we'll keep going, but we definitely had to regroup after the big blow of uh, the clinical pathway that was just published. Right now, doctors would be open to discipline for even treating a new tick bite with antibiotics. Well, you mentioned that one of the other ways of bringing Lyme disease into the country is via migratory birds, but the government believes they somehow don't get across the border into Australia. Well, they're definitely not looking at it as an option. I'm told that in Australia that we're a small country. We're large geographically, but small in population. And our research pool of money is significantly less than other governments around the world, other countries. You know, we anecdotally get reports that chronic fatigue support groups, when they learn about Lyme, they discover about half of them actually have stealth infections underpinning their chronic fatigue. Or I know a friend who's been part of a sarcoidosis group, same thing. So we know all the common misdiagnosis of Lyme disease, where it's undetected and untreated. You know, in Australia, we reckon there'll be up to 500,000 people in that experience where if they were diagnosed and accepted as stealth pathogens being causality, they could get back to their life and get off public support and get back into being contributing members of society. But, you know, in Australia, the stats are terrible. It's dire. And the health system would save some money as well, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very short-sighted. Ticks across the coast haven't been investigated for Borrelia, 
But a study in the US recently warned that ticks can also be found on beaches. <laughs> yes. Well, we do get that again, anecdotally, because there's no epidemiological survey here. But in our inbox, tick bites can be anywhere, obviously more common in coastal, more wet areas. But we've got tick bites in the center of us, like it's a desert, you know, so it's not on our website right now, but we will res resurrect it. But we had a tick bite map where patients reported and there is really no state or place in Australia that was immune for patients experiencing a tick bite. And then they're not looking at other vectors, are they? But anything that bites really needs to be explored as a possibility for transmission of these stealth pathogens. So doctors report bed bugs, march flies, midges, which are these tiny little almost invisible biting things. You know, and other people have said leeches. And I think that's known globally. Anything that bites and sucks blood and where there's an interaction between the saliva, the, the insect and the human there's a potential for transmission of pathogens and that needs to be embraced and researched. And I believe the evidence of having a rash has been removed from the Australian guidelines in diagnosing Lyme. They do have it, but they say that a GP isn't qualified to diagnose a bullseye rash. Anyway, right now, infectious disease of Australia stance is that it's not here. So there's not really a lot of possibility of patient getting a diagnosis here. You told Dr. Horowitz that Australian doctors have been silenced and Lyme patients have been medically abandoned. Is there any hope that things might be changing? Uh, right now, there's no hope, to be honest. Nothing coming from government. But, you know, our patient organisation and there's other organisations in Australia, you know, I think it's about ethics for me. It's about injustice. And the only right thing to do is to keep asking and keep exposing what's happening here. So, you know, again, obviously, you know, we see what's happening with legals in the US. We hope that's in our future somewhere in Australia. We do have one research project that's launching in the next two months that we support as a patient group. You know, it's one thing to keep using the same research modalities to test and not find anything when the globe is advancing in that area. So right now, this research project will include both local expertise, which I'm sure is improving and, and emerging, and also international expertise, which is really important because obviously these pathogens are easily found by many labs and scientists around the world, and that needs to be included in any research here. So we do support that, and it's one that will look at newly sick people that haven't had a lot of treatment to start with, and they'll be testing not only for pathogens and looking at the genetic markers of these patients, but also what treatments work for them. So um, that is yet to be announced. I just know that it's in development phase and that does hold hope for patients. Sharon, is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to tell me? I would just like to say thank you. And, um, you know, there's a whole team of very dedicated people. Again, I'd like to say we're not the only organization in Australia, but we're uh, very dedicated and committed to the patients that we serve and we won't stop. So um, look, they need to keep watch for us and partner with us this year because we're going to keep exposing what's happening here in Australia. Why do you think the Australian authorities don't take Lyme disease seriously? Well, that's a very good question. And then probably anything I'd say would be an allegation because while I've directly uh, liaised with many of them over the last 10 years, 
it's only been Professor Bagley that really thought he could make a difference and that this would be, you know, we obviously will get a solution during his tenure. And I can remember him telling me in 2014 that it wasn't possible and that the entrenchment of the No Lyme in Australia crew was just too strong and that science was the only way forward. Well, the only way we could get science prioritized was through pushing the government and that took a Senate inquiry. So those things all take like three to five years. And in the meantime, patients are increasingly suffering. So I can only see what's being exposed in other countries. And I can only imagine it, it has to be the same here in that, you know, there's medical ego, people are hanging on to what they thought was true. There seems to be a corruption in science in that, you know, true science is never fully proven. You know, the next discovery could change everything we thought was known. And somehow that basic fundamental philosophy of pure science is being ignored in Australia. And I couldn't begin to guess or imagine or allegate who might be responsible for that, but it's what we witness. These decisions are not based on science. What scientist or medical professional would have such an entrenched and dogmatic view of no Lyme here when there's been a research gap for 25 years? The scientific view would be that well, we don't know, this is a clinical picture, we should take this seriously and urgently prioritize action to discover what's happening to make people sick. There's a very clear epidemiological picture here. It's, you know, I had a, a volunteer once who was a public health professional. She was a volunteer in the inbox. She said there's patient after patient after patient with the same story. And that's non-scientific. So we really hope to push for an epidemiological review and, and really get this exposed and not to penalize anyone. Let's just draw the line in the sand and go forward with progressive science. I must say, I think many countries around the world, including the US and Europe and Scandinavia, have all had their challenges very similar. But I don't think I've heard anything as bad as the Australian situation. Yeah, it's terrible. And especially with kids and, you know, my mental health does take a beating. I used to be able to call and call and call and get somebody who's got a fresh tick bite with clear emerging disease clinical picture and get them urgent appointment. I can't now. I had a child recently that had been bitten, had a bullseye rash, and I phoned and phoned and couldn't even get them in anywhere. So it's absolutely soul destroying. It's, mm. it's just terrible to be in that position and Anyway, we have to keep going for that. My kids are at risk. I see some signs in their congenital risk potential. Well, I'm not just fighting for my kids. I'm fighting for everyone because I, I'm fighting for what's right. My two highest values are contribution and integrity. And I just can't stand when I see this level of injustice. And I think that if good people don't stand up, then it just prevails, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's hope that your global initiative will also have some effect. Well, I'd like to say that it wasn't initiated by me. It was uh, groups in Spain and France and Canada, um, but I wholeheartedly support it. And I think that you know now is the time for patients to have a global and aligned voice because tick-borne diseases and other victim-borne diseases do not stop at borders or continents. And uh, the science needs to be true and needs to be foundational in the steps going forward. Sharon, thank you so much for talking to Lyme Dialogues. And I think you're doing a fantastic job and I wish you lots of luck. Thank you very much, Angela. We do need a lot of luck. And maybe, I don't know, a bit of prayer maybe, I think, too. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. All right, see you. Bye-bye. 
If you know others who would be interested, please share this podcast. And if you'd like to tell me your story, you can contact me by email at limedialogues at gmail.com or on Instagram at lime underscore dialogues at Instagram. Thank you for listening to Lime Dialogues. Take care and goodbye.